2 Corinthians 13. 13.1. This will be the third time I am coming to you by the mouth of two or three witnesses. Every word shall be established. I have told you before and I and foretell as if I were present the second time. And now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest that if I come again, I will not spare. He's going to come to them a third time. This is the way it worked Paul initially came to the city of Corinth, and if you want to read about that, it's in Acts chapter 18, and he stayed there for about a year and a half, and then after he left from that time, that initial time there, he wrote the book of 1 Corinthians. Then he visited them after 1 Corinthians, and now he's writing 2 Corinthians, and he says, I'm going to follow up with another visit. So it's like visit, letter, visit, letter, and now he says, I'll be coming to you a third time. Some people think, I've read commentators and heard teachers that say that what Paul writes here about two or three witnesses relates to, are you with me? It relates to the two or three visits. I don't think that's the case because if you read about two or three witnesses in Matthew 18, it's two or three different people, not the same person coming to somebody multiple times. And that's what he's referring to, the words of Jesus in, in Matthew 18. I'll read those to you. The Lord said this in 18:15 of the book of Matthew. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So I see in what Jesus teaches here <clears throat> that at times a second person or a third person needs to be brought in if, if someone is, is sinning. So he's going to come to the church in Corinth. And this does make sense in another way. Consider it, and, and I believe this is what Paul is talking about. He's coming to them and he's warning them in advance that they should not be found in certain sins, right? He listed sins of strife and immorality in the last chapter. So now... The two or three witnesses very much so could refer to the fact that he's not going to just listen to what one person says. That if there's hearsay, that it can't, if it can't be grounded in actual witnesses, that he's not going to deal with it. He's not going to come in some discipline. And so this is a scriptural principle by the mouth of two or three witnesses that needs to be practiced in the church today. Because you know what's happening in society? As soon as the accusation goes out, Many people have already decided the judgment, right? They, they hear something, they must be true, and instead of trying to confirm it, or instead of going to that person and saying, is this really the case, they automatically believe. And look at the wisdom of God's word right from the mouth of Jesus. They'll go to the person, <clears throat> they've sinned against you, and then if you need to go to them a second time, bring, bring a witness or bring two witnesses with you. I want you to see this, that the whole intention of going to someone, the whole intention of Paul going to the church in Corinth is to see them restored and established. He says that when I come to you, I want to see you built up in God. I want to see you walking with him. I want to find you living a righteous life. I don't wish to see that these sins of strife and immorality are alive among you. So when you go to someone because they have sinned. The whole point
point is to see them restored. The whole point is to see them turn from what they've been trapped in and, and, and abandon that sin. It's only when there's an unwillingness to repent that the second or the third witness is, is brought. So the first point here is take a second or third witness when necessary. Paul wants to have a joyful visit. He wants to have fellowship. He wants to serve the Lord with them. He doesn't want to deal in discipline, so he gives them this warning that he's coming. And he says, out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, if there's something that I need to deal with, I'm confronting you right now about these sins in the, in the church, in some of you, and now I want to come and have this be a profitable visit where I'm, I'm not dealing in discipline. Although discipline can be profitable, he says, no, I, I just want to find you built up, not torn down in the faith. There's something else here, a second point, if you see it in verse 2, some application from that verse. Do you see that he addresses people who have sinned before? And then he also addresses what he says, all the rest. So what he is, is saying is, there are those of you in the body of Christ, and you were previously entrapped in sin. There, there was a sin that had a hold on your life, maybe multiple sins. And if you were one of those who have sinned before, I don't want you to be sinning again. I don't want it to be the case where you left that sin to follow Christ, and then when I see you again, th that I see that you're right back in your old ways. Now, this warning isn't just to those who have sinned before. It's to all the rest also. But this sinned before, that's the category that I'm in. <laughs> like, Lord, I, I know the way that I used to think, the way I used to live, what my actions used to be, what my motivations used to be like. And I don't want to go back to that again. Because you know this to be true, that we can get sucked in by previous sins quickly. The person who's been in bondage to alcohol doesn't need to warm up to the idea of getting drunk. The person who has lived in immorality can be back there in a second. The person who is full of strife and contention, the brawler, the punch or the argument is close at hand. Do we know that about ourselves? Those you have, have sinned before. We see it in others sometimes, like, boy, if they're not careful, they could be right back there again so quickly. That's true of me. It's true of you in regards to some sins where we go, Lord, I don't want to go right back to that place again. I want to be far away, making no provision for that sin. So a second point, don't get sucked in by previous sins. The enemy, he's sneaky. He's subtle. He stalks. And I don't, I don't watch lions hunt, but I watch my cats hunt. They they just stalk. They're such good hunters. They're, they're quiet. They're patient. They're, they're careful. And all of a sudden, they pounce on the grasshopper, right? Or whatever it is, they're, they're hunting. Something small, something big. And you and I must realize the reality of the scripture, that we're in a war. And that the devil would like nothing more than to find those who have sinned before and get them to sin again. Do you remember just, just go right back there again. It's so easy. It's so accessible. That's who you really are. It's not who you really are. You really are the child of, of God. You really are living in faith, not by the flesh anymore. So Paul says, I'm coming again. I will deal with strife if it is there. I will deal with the sexual immorality if it's there. But I don't want to find this behavior. I want to find you building each other up. 
Now, of course, the church is so much more advanced today than it was 2,000 years ago. We don't need these kinds of warnings. We're far beyond. When, when we read this, we just think of the primitive nature of the people and their sin and how they could just so quickly be taken back again. I hear epistles taught, and I think to myself, why are we just talking about them? Or why are we talking about that? Why are we talking about us? Because we say so often that the Bible is written for me, that it's written for today, and then we start talking about some church in ancient times that was so prone to go back to its sins instead of saying, that's me. If I don't have my guard up, right? These admonitions are for all Christians. These warnings are for each believer, no matter where they are. Thank you, Lord, that you discipline us, that you warn us because you love us. Isn't that the mature perspective? The immature perspective is, I don't really need to be warned. The immature perspective is overconfident, correct? And the more we mature in the Lord, the more we realize, I need to guard. I can't think I've got it all dialed in because the reality is, if I'm not leaning on Jesus, I, I don't have it dialed in. I've got to trust and obey every, every single moment of, of every day. That's the perfected person, not perfected in terms of being flawless, but in terms of being mature in the Lord. Don't get sucked in by previous sins. To see that happen in our lives is, is really a tragedy. It doesn't glorify God, and it's to play right into the hands of the enemy. Now we get to verse 3. Since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you, for though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God, for we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. Jesus is the ultimate example of willing weakness. He willingly made himself weak when he went to the cross and paid for our sins. He wasn't forced into that death. He wasn't cornered or coerced into going to the cross. It wasn't as though Jesus didn't have any other options, that he had to be executed. No, he was willingly weak so that he could pay for my sins and yours. He went to the lowest place. Why did he do that? So that he could prove beyond reasonable doubt that he loves us. He gave us this demonstration and he willingly made himself weak so that we would believe in his love for us. To be nailed to that cross, to be crucified in weakness so that we would know of his limitless love. Now, we're used to heroes that flex their muscles and swoop in and rescue. That's the normal hero story, isn't it? Well, look at how strong, look at how capable, look at how intelligent. That's the normal hero. We're not used to heroes that are mocked and maimed. Yeah, the idea of salvation is there with a hero that comes in strength at first, but do they really have any skin in the game? Well, Jesus isn't that kind of hero. He laid it all on the line. Talk about skin in the game. He gave his whole, whole self, separated from the Father, carried our sins, tortured on the cross, crucified in weakness so that you could have eternal life, 
so that you could have abundant life, so that you could have fellowship and forgiveness and freedom. There is Jesus choosing to be weak, the ultimate weakness, the lowliest place. The Psalms say that it was like being a worm. You wouldn't even think twice about stepping on a worm. It's a, it's a worm. Jesus brought to that place. That's the gift. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus giving you the gift of his willing weakness. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Do you believe in the cross? This third point is believe in Jesus' willing weakness and living power. Believe in his willing weakness that he went to the cross, laying down his will and taking up the Father's, and believe in his living power. That willing weakness of Jesus, it just keeps wooing me. It just keeps calling me to walk with him. Does it do that to you too? Jesus showing me his love. I, I can't, I won't look and say, oh, that, that's, that's great, Jesus, that you so willingly gave your life and became low, but I'm gonna go my own way. No, he calls to us with his willing weakness and says, this is how to love. And I want you by my side. I want you as my child. Believe. But it is in the cross, it is in the willing weakness, but it's also in the power of the resurrection. Jesus' resurrection was the greatest display of power ever. He burst forth from the tomb, conquering death. We can't do that. That's got to be God. Conquers death, comes forth from the tomb. So this willing weakness is followed by living power, brought low so that now he could be brought to the highest place. Jesus, highly exalted, resurrected in power. We have quoted Philippians chapter 3, verse 10 many times, but this time it's to emphasize the very beginning of it, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. You see there, the resurrection of Jesus, the reality that he is no longer in that tomb, that is power. Do you believe? That if you confess, that if you, right there, sitting in your seat, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, listen to this guarantee, you will be saved. Believe in the willing weakness. Believe in the living power of Jesus, surrendering your life to him. He lives forevermore. O grave, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? Put your faith. It's going to be a lot about faith here. Your faith. You believe in something. You believe in someone. You believe in yourself. You believe in the world. You believe in the so-called leaders. Or you believe in Jesus. The one who is willingly weak and the one who lives in power, resurrected power. That faith, necessary for salvation. But also there's an application in verse 4. The end of 4, do you see it? Are we willing to be weak? Because we're to be in awe of Jesus' willing weakness, but we're also to put it into action. Paul and Timothy were willingly brought to weakness so that the power of God could be manifest in them. And these are some of the verses from previously in the book. When I am weak, then I am strong. In my weakness, his strength is made perfect. And then back from our study of Ephesians, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. 
Are we willing to be weak so that he can be proved strong in us? You see, as you walk with Jesus, as you believe in Jesus, you're saying, I am willing to be weak. Now, you're already weak. <laughs> you, you already don't have the strength to save yourself. It's not necessarily talking about that. But I'm willing to be weak so that the power of God can be manifested in my life, can be shown in my life. Because if I'm ho holding on to my little tiny personal power, then the power of God can't be poured through me. This part about being willingly weak is hard for me. It's difficult for me. Is it difficult for you? This, this persecution. They're going to call you a babbler. They're going to say you're insane. They're going to say that what you have, have to say is strange. Because according to them, they've been brainwashed. They think it's all about self. And when you're saying, life is in Christ, there's a lot there. There's a lot of weakness. And you're not always going to feel strong in your infirmity, in your thorn in the flesh, possibly. Are you going to say, Lord, when I am weak, then I am strong. In my weakness, your strength is made perfect. See, Jesus is the model for us, isn't he? He modeled it, and now that's supposed to be our mode of ministry. Jesus brought low that he might be exalted. The scriptures say, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Look at the ministry of Moses. Did the Lord use him when he was a prince? No, he used him once he was a fugitive, on the run, and old. He didn't use him when he was 40. He used him when he was 80. He needed to learn the lesson of weakness, did he not? Jesus is saying, this is the mode of ministry. Be willing to be weak so that my power can be manifested in you. When I look at ministers and all kinds of different ministers, as they get older, some of them just literally fizzle and, and, and they don't have the vitality, even spiritually speaking, that they once had. But then I've seen other ministers and even though their bodies are breaking down and even though they can't speak as eloquently as they once could, the power of God is flowing through them in their weakness. And it's just amazing. I see that. And as I get older, I think, Lord, I, I want to be useful for you. I don't want to just hang up the cleats and say, okay, I retired. I, I don't see that that's the ministry. I see that you serve till you're dead, but I know I'm not going to be, if you give me 30 more years, I, I'm going to be different when I'm 80 than I am 50, right? But if the power of God is in me, I can still be useful. Jim Cimbala, pastor at Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir is one of my inspirations. I listen to him teach the word of God. He's in his 80s, and I'm still just pierced to the heart. Lord, in, in our weakness, and sometimes that's persecution. Sometimes that's physical infirmity. Sometimes it's emotional or relational. I'm lowly, Lord. I, I need you. Jesus is modeling that for us. So are you willing to be weak, but are you willing to be made new? Are you willing to live in the power of God? Because, look, we shall live with him by the power of God towards you. Jesus is alive, and now we're going to live with his power towards you in the resurrection. You see, the new you isn't somebody that you've 
strived for and sweated for. You got all this stuff now. It's like, this is the new you. And the whole idea in the world is you've worked for this. You're fighting the battle and you're, you just made yourself the, the new you. You know who the new you really is? It's Christ in you. And without Christ in us, we can't be the new person, can we? The scriptures say, God raised the Lord, this is in 1 Corinthians 6, 14, and will also raise us up by his power, correct? So am I willing to be new? Because sometimes we like holding on to the old person, the old self, the old man, the old woman, don't we? I don't want new motives. I don't want new desires. I like these desires. I don't want new ways. I love being entrenched in this. We can get to the place where our sin is very dear to us, be willingly weak, but then be willing to be made new, willing weakness, living power, connected to Christ. Jesus modeled it for us. Christian, you know what I'm talking about. Unbeliever, you don't know yet, but you can know today by believing in Jesus as Lord. You don't have to wait. You can come and submit yourself to him and he'll fill you up with his resurrection power. Believer, you know what I'm talking about because you've lived in the spirit, but you've also walked in the flesh and say, that's the willing weakness that I need. That's the living power that I need in my life because that's who I am. I'm a child of God by faith, redeemed by his blood. Now, you did not come to church today to hear verse five and six. I mean, this is not a topic that most pastors would say, you know what? I'm gonna teach people to ask themselves if they're saved or not. That's not a very comforting question, is it? But I submit to you that's right here in the Bible. Most of us wouldn't wake up and say, I can't wait to go to church and examine myself to see if I'm in the faith. But that's what the verse says. To test myself to see if Jesus is in me. But that's what the word of God says. Examine yourselves in the faith. So did I, is this a fourth point? It is. Believe in Jesus' willing weakness and living power, and now examine yourselves for the faith. And there is only one faith, one Lord, one baptism. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified? But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. Now I pray to God that you do no evil, not that we should appear approved, but that you should do what is honorable, though we may seem disqualified. Examine means to look closely. It's to test. It's to look carefully. So both those words are used here, examine and test. It's a careful look. It's, it's a detailed look, not flippant, not, oh, I, I took the test and, you know, it doesn't matter anymore. Are you in the faith? Isn't that what the exam is for, the examination? Is Jesus in you or are you disqualified? The Greek word for disqualified here is the same word that they would use to find out if a metal was pure or not. So they would take that bronze and they would test it to see if it was really bronze. Is the metal pure? Is the gold pure? And if it was not found to be pure, then it was marked as fake or marked as phony. So the word is saying, examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. We don't like tests usually. 
There aren't a whole lot of people that say, I love taking exams. I love being tested. I, I love the whole process of being forged and the trials. I love seeing what's really in me. That's hard to do. It's something that we have test, test anxiety. Have you had that before where you know you know it, but all of a sudden you don't know it? And, and, or you, you're, you're pressured. You're up to bat. You, you know you can hit, but it's just the, the test of being up there. And you feel like dodging and just saying, can somebody pinch hit for me? Can, and they're saying, no, you're the, you're the best hitter. Get up there and do it. And, and that's the fear sometimes when it comes to testing. And this is the most important test that you'll ever take because it pertains to the faith, faith in Jesus Christ. It pertains to the Lord living in you and living in me. So Paul isn't afraid to say, look at yourself and admit where you really are and who you really are. And if you strayed, come back. All the verification that we need to do or supposedly need to do these days, the authentication like, do you like the I'm not a robot test? Have you taken that one before? I fail the I'm not a robot test sometimes, and I'm, I know I'm not a robot. And it just says, you know, check the box if you're not a robot. I'm like, okay, I'm not a robot. Here it goes. And then they give me, my eyesight's not that good up close. <laughs> Click all the boxes that have a bus, and I'm like, is that a van or a bus? Or I can't see. I think that's a bus fender. I click on it. I'm a robot. Right? I, I failed the test. I got stressed about the test, and it's not. But I know who I am, right? There's this verification process that needs to take place. Show me, prove me to me. There's a, a testing that happens there. Seems silly, but it's verifying the true nature of, of who is taking the test. My cousins in the Bay Area, most of them just love baseball. We grew up being baseball people. And we've been Giants fans for a long time, through the years of terribleness, through the good years, to back to the years of terribleness again. And one of my cousins, like me, loved playing baseball in high school. But when you get old, sometimes you play softball. And it's, <laughs> it's not because you like softball. It's because it's like, as I'm speaking as a guy, because I know a girl, out fast pitch is a different thing. But you start playing like slow pitch softball, and there's something in you, and you're like, am I really going to do this? And, and you are. So you get on a softball team. You're like, this is kind of like baseball, and it's sort of fun. So he's playing on the slow-pitch softball team. And it was, it was such a for-fun league that they were short players, and you know how it works. You, you start looking for people to fill the slots because you, you need a ringer. You got somebody. So somebody down Pacifica volunteered, say, hey, you know, I'll play. I said, he's kind of an older guy, though. He's probably in his 50s. And, and, well, at the time, my cousin was in his 30s. I'm just saying. It's, he's like, w w who is this guy? He said, he, he, said, he said he'll play for us. So the coach said, okay, yeah, but have him shag a couple of fly balls first. Because I just want to see, because we might be better off without him. And so they, they stuck him in right field. This guy, true story, my cousin says, comes jogging out, tall, lean, black man, hat on backwards, full mustache. And my cousin looked, that's Jeff Leonard. Now, if you're a Giants fan, Jeff Leonard was like one of the Giants' best players in the 80s. Now, it didn't take much to be one of the Giants' best players. It's not like he's a Hall of Famer, but he was an all-star a couple times. 
Jeff Leonard trotting out to right field. I think Jeff did okay, right? <laughs> throwing rockets to third base, you know, just catching everything. But you used to call him the hack man. Do you remember that, Giants fans? He'd like swing at pitches that were over his head and just boom, hit him out of the park. But my cousin was embarrassed because he said, I just asked Jeff Leonard, a major league baseball player, to like try out to, to be on our softball team. He's like, I, was, I wanted to run out there and say, stop, stop, you don't have to take the test. But Jeff took the test. He knew who he was, right? He, he, he was, okay, you want me to catch a couple fly balls? You want me to, to make a couple throws? I'll do that for you. You see, when it comes to this testing, it's gotten so off with some people that because we believe in the security of our salvation, we're not even willing to ask the question. We're not even willing to examine ourselves. We're not even willing to verify that we are indeed in the faith. And this verifying is, of the faith is so much different than any other verification, way beyond proving you're not a robot or proving that you're a good baseball player. And let's talk about this. It's more complex because it must be done in the truth that you are not saved by what you do. You are saved by what Jesus has done. So as we examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith, we're not just examining our works because we're not saved by works. We're saved by faith, a surrendered faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're not looking in ourselves to find worthiness. We're not looking in my, in my own deeds. Am I worthy to belong to the Lord? The answer is certainly not. So the question is, are you in the faith or are you in the flesh? Are you living by faith or are you living in the flesh? And you know the difference if you're a believer. To live in the power of self, to try to be good, I guess, to try to do the right thing and muscle it through in that kind of striving or Am I a person who walks in faith with the Lord Jesus? So this examining of self, this testing of yourselves, should be to us, is faith in Jesus my foundation? Now let's also make this clear, because the scriptures say that faith without works is dead. When James wrote that by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is saying, look at your faith. Is it a faith that actually makes you like Jesus? Is it a faith that is changing you, that is transforming you? Did not Jesus say that you will know them by their fruits? He did. So as we examine ourselves, we go back to the truth that for grace, by grace you have been saved through faith. But we also go back to the truth that if our faith is really in the lordship of Jesus Christ, that we're going to live so much differently than we would. We're going to be new creations. Isn't that what we read in the Word of God? So we apply the whole counsel of God's Word to this examination of our faith. Don't be paralyzed by the exam. Don't be insulted by it. Don't think that it is to insult the grace of God. Instead, realize that it's a straightforward command that we must carry out with a well-rounded understanding of the Scriptures, that we shouldn't be flippant about it. We're not doubting the power of God to save us. In fact, we're exercising our faith in the Lord and his good word, not ignoring these instructions. And if the examination shows salvation, then rejoice. 
And if the examination shows hypocrisy, then repent. Right? Because of Jesus' willing weakness and because of his living power, we are to be connected to him. Does that describe your life? Because that's to be our foundation. Here I am, take me, use my weakness, use, use me in this lowly state. We should be able to validate our Christianity. We should be able to validate our faith, to verify it. Now remember that this self-accusation is in the context of sin in the church. The last chapter talked about strife and contention, selfish ambitions. It also talked about uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness. So the idea here is to go back to the truth that you're saved by faith, but also look to see if you're living a changed life. Far from flawless, but changed. We're not saved by our works, but we're saved by a faith that changes our works. I think of what it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, that you might prove what is the good and acceptable, perfect will of God. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you might prove it in your life and live in a way. Now, don't misunderstand me. You're not saved by your works, but if you have a surrendered faith in Jesus, your works are going to be different. I'll remind you from 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. If anyone is in Christ, this is 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So those sins should be a thing of the past, not the present. It shouldn't be a way of life. And when we fall into sin, then we confess our sins, we come back to the Lord, but that we would not be living lives that are marked by a lifestyle of sin. You've been washed, made to be just as if you never sinned. You've been sanctified, set apart. So if your life is not matching what your lips have said, take a closer look. Now, this section is also about Paul's apostleship. He is saying in these verses, if you're in the faith, that proves that our ministry is legitimate. If you're doing evil, it's going to seem that we're disqualified. That's why he says seems, right? If Christ is not in you, it may seem as though our ministry is not legitimate. And do you realize that in any ministry, any person, it's like we're going to send out the good seed of God's word. And there will be false conversions that take place. People that say one thing and then live a totally different way. But for us, are we saying this is the pure good word of God? Are we making it clear? Are we stating it? Are we showing that love in our lives? Or have we started to just tell people the enjoyable parts and then we're sowing the seeds of false conversion, right? No, instead, we should say, this is the gospel. This is the truth of how Jesus can save you from your sins. You become willingly weak, just as Jesus was. You having living power because of your surrender to Jesus. There's a song, and maybe because it's such a happy song, we don't 
think about it that much. It shouldn't be that way. It asks a lot of really hard examination questions, and I'm going to read it to you before we end up singing it later on. It says, have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Lots of questions here. It's a long test. It's a lot of exam. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? You're taking the test. It's the exam, isn't it? Are you fully trusting in his grace this hour? Or am I trusting myself? Am I living in the flesh? Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? It goes on. Listen. Are you walking daily by the Savior's side? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Do you rest each moment in the crucified? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? How dare we ask such things? It's insulting, isn't it? No, it's good. Are you washed? And if you're washed, are you walking? Because that's what the wash do. They live each moment. They rest each moment in the crucified. Listen to this, verse 3. When the bridegroom cometh, will your robes be white? That's Jesus coming for me and coming for you. Are we going to be just living lives just like this messed up weird world? Or are we going to be standing there saying, Lord, you made me righteous and you've also sanctified me to live a holy life. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Will your soul be ready for the mansions bright? Verse 4 is, lay aside the garments that are stained with sin and be washed in the blood of the Lamb. There's a fountain flowing for the soul unclean. Oh, be washed in the blood of the Lamb. There is one fount that can cleanse you. It is the fount of the blood of Jesus. There's only one way you can be right before God in true righteousness, and that is to let him take your sin. And when you do that, he'll make you new so that you know how to lay aside the garments. You know how to get clean. Aren't our physical lives about that? We get dirty, but we're like, I'm not going to stay in my dirtiness. I'm going to take a shower. You get your clothes dirty. It's not the end of the world. You can put them in the washing machine. Are they living in that? No. The, the cleansing power of Jesus, that's the walk of the believer. We thank you right now, Lord, that you wash us clean. To be forgiven, I don't have to carry the weight of my sin, Lord. I praise your name for that. I don't have to carry the weight of, of who I am apart from you. I pray for anyone in this place or anybody watching or listening today that if they're carrying the weight of their sin, that they would cry out to you. We pray for their salvation, Lord. And we also pray that as we examine ourselves, we would be found in the faith, which is the faith in you. That we would be found, we'd look inside of us and we would see you right there, Jesus, you in us. You working. Thank you for not giving up on us, Lord. I would have given up a long time ago, but you have not, Lord. You are so faithful. I thank you for your relentless pursuit. I thank you for your rock-solid word that tells us exactly what to do and how we should think. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.